podcast three in land use planning for uh, early 2021 in the uh, the next uh, edition of the certificate. Uh, my name is Brian, and I'm going to I'm part of the conversation. I'll be asking some questions. So let's jump right in, Bruce. What is Indigenous knowledge? Indigenous knowledge is the total overall knowledge base acquired over a very long time, many generations, by Indigenous peoples through direct experience and interaction with the environment. So it involves both ecological and cultural knowledge of the land, water, wildlife, and other parts of the environment. It recognizes the world as a complex system that is holistic, and it recognizes the interconnections and linkages among all of its parts, the land, the water, the wildlife, and all the other parts of the environment. And finally, it understands the uh, natural environmental changes and cycles, and it takes a holistic view of the natural world. So when we talk about Indigenous knowledge, we're not simply talking about the knowledge from First Nations, but also the knowledge from Inuit and Métis? That's right. So I know that Indigenous knowledge includes uh, many types of information. Uh, given some time constraints, perhaps we could just focus on, on four. And I was thinking, uh, one, the locations of traditional land use areas. Two, spiritual and cultural significant sites. Three, changes in wildlife and fish habitat. And four, changes in water quality and quantity. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah, there are many, many more, but those are often the issues that are very well known about in traditional knowledge by the elders, by the trappers, fishers, hunters, and uh, other people who build up a familiarity with the environment over a long course of time. So, for example, uh, often when I go into a community and we get around to the question of water, what I almost always hear, uh, especially from the elders, is that in the old days, the water could be taken from the muskeg, uh, the watercourse, and used for drinking and uh, bathing and other purposes. So, so at that point, in the olden days, there was no problems with quality. That's right. But they'll say that nowadays, they're, they have to take the water with them when they go out on a hunt or uh, uh, trapping. And I, I ask, well, what's the difference? And they will often say it appears to be colored, brownish, compared to the water many, many years ago. And it also has an odor. And it also has a bad taste. And often there's a fear of getting sick from drinking the water. So this is something that the elders, trappers, and hunters would know a lot about, more than the scientists who uh, have perhaps arrived there maybe six months before and started sampling the water with chemical tests. So the, uh, the, the elders and other members of the community would have sort of a, a before and after uh, That's right. scenario. Yeah. This must affect, though, uh, habitat as well. Must have, must, uh, brackish water or poor water quality must affect wildlife and fish as well as people. That's right. And uh, one example of this that I, I remember very well was uh, concerning a moose lick, a place where moose go to uh, lick in the water or the sand or the rock to, to get more salt in their diet, which they need. And these places are very, very important to moose, moose survival and health. So in one case, a pipeline company was uh, building the pipeline and it happened to transect uh, a moose trail. And 
the proponent wasn't too concerned about that and was surprised when the, the hunters and, uh, and elders expressed a lot of concern. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, why? Why, why would this concern be there? Well, it happens that that trail was very well known, that moose trail, and that it led to a, mo a very important moose lick by a certain stream. And that if the trails were cut off by uh, a pipeline or other development, then the, the use of the moose lick would be harmed and the moose would stop uh, using it because of the disturbance. So it, it underscores the point that uh, all things are connected and one has to look very widely to uh, see what impacts one has from any kind of development. Now was this a good news story? Did the, the consultation with and the, the information from the elders and, uh, and hunters have some effect on the pipeline? Yeah, there were some good suggestions that came out, good. and uh, that one was, was resolved. Excellent, excellent. You, you mentioned uh, the traditional uh, or indigenous knowledge can include other things too. Uh, what about spiritual, cultural, historically significant sites? What about the effects on those sites? Yeah, oftentimes uh, a proponent uh, in industry or, or government will not be knowledgeable about the... Uh, spiritual or cultural importance of land or historical. For example, there may have been a ceremonial site, a dance site, uh, a site for uh, harvesting moose, uh, for, for fish, and these have often uh, much more significance to the community than simply the biophysical, you know, the water, land, and soil. So it requires the community to, to um, point these things out because they may not even be known about by their, even by their experts. So the indigenous knowledge then is invaluable, it seems to me, on, on three scales. There's within the community itself, which might be quite small, uh, within the reserve, which might be larger and include areas other than the community, but even outside the reserve to do with uh, lands that were used traditionally and captured either through treaty or, or Aboriginal title. Is it safe to say that there are various scales to which this knowledge applies? Yeah, yeah definitely. And uh, one has to take that kind of view when, when uh, doing the environmental impact assessment. Now, why, that, that's, a, that's a nice segue into, uh, into my next question. It's almost like you're anticipating what I'm going to, when we're going to chat about. Uh, why is Indigenous knowledge important in the environmental impact assessment, the EIA process, specifically, and land use planning generally? Yeah, and as a biologist by profession, I, my experience has been that indigenous knowledge is important because for, for a couple of reasons. One is that Western scientists takes what we could call a reductionist view. So we understand things well, but we focus on things in isolation from other parts of the environment. But indigenous knowledge looks at the world in a holistic way rather than reductionist way. and realizes that all parts of the environment are, are connected and linked. And the other important thing is that the knowledge extends back through many generations, usually. And uh, a scientist coming in and studying the land and trying to predict the impacts will have maybe uh, a year, maybe two years at best, to uh, become familiar with the land and then in a different way. So indigenous knowledge really uh, is critical 
to uh, identifying our valued ecosystem components and predicting the impacts and their significance on all parts of the environment. We concluded uh, podcast 1B by talking about how complex the environment is and uh, the interconnectedness of its various parts and it strikes me that indigenous knowledge uh, is necessary to somewhat understand that complexity. Uh, so you and I, and the students uh, understand this, has, has this been recognized in Canadian legislation? Yes, it has. Uh, the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, or SIA, was enacted in the early 1990s. And as far as I know, it was the first legislation to recognize the importance of linkages as an environmental component that could be impacted by pro projects and human activities. So, so it's something that we all have to take seriously in, in the context of land use planning. In that context, then, what is an Indigenous Knowledge Study? Yeah, an Indigenous Knowledge Study is a long-term study that may take course over a number of years to find out, before it's too late, um, what the condition of the environment was, all the things we just talked about, the linkages and the inter interconnections among species, the, the cycles, the habitat and everything, as it, as it was uh, generations ago, because only by having that information can we really predict what the impact of, for example, climate change is going to be. We need the uh, background information and also to uh, set kind of a baseline against which we can uh, judge environmental um, activities and developments. So an indigenous knowledge study includes many things, uh, focusing on, on many aspects of the environment, wildlife, vegetation, plants, water, land use, lifestyle, trails and markers, trap lines, camps and cabins, uh, grave sites, meeting places, archaeology. Uh, but that's sort of in the abstract or the hypothetical. You gave us an excellent example, Bruce, earlier of, a, of the, uh, the effect of a pipeline on a moose lick. Can you give us another example uh, from your experience? Yeah, uh, I remember some years ago I was working with uh, one indigenous community in northern Alberta. And uh, they were very concerned about a pipeline that had uh, come close to their, actually through their community and very close to a certain berry patch, a blueberry patch, where they collected blueberries each, each summer. And the pipeline company did all the things that should be done according to the law and uh, replaced the soil and everything. But there was a problem afterwards, and that was that the uh, blueberries, for some reason, the plants grew well, but the berries did not uh, mature in the proper way. And uh, their use of the blueberry patch as a result was uh, pretty well terminated. So the, the uh, issue was raised with the company and they had an important uh, public meeting they carried out and the uh, proponent agreed to address the community's concerns. So they uh, said, how much, how, much, how much in the way of blueberries do you collect from that, that patch? And bear in mind that uh, relatives to the families that, that used the blueberry patch used to come in every summer and there would be ceremonies and dancing and it was a, a very important cultural part of the community and it brought the families and the communities together. 
But the proponent said, well, so you say there's this many uh, liters of blueberries that you get from the blueberry. What we'll do is we'll go down to the store every year, we'll buy the, the required number of pints or liters of blueberries, and we'll bring them around and deliver them to your house. The, the community was not pleased. <laughs> and obviously the reason was that the, it wasn't just the berries themselves, it was the significance of the berry picking process to, the, to all the families who came in from like hundreds of kilometers away. And uh, it was a big, important uh, cultural part of their year. So, so it wasn't simply about nutrition, it was also about the, the social bonds, the, the cohesion amongst families and the community as a whole. That's right. Now, let's conclude then with a, with a direct question. Uh, I'm hoping you can tell me this was a good news story as well, was it? I'm not sure about that. Ah. Um, the, the berries actually didn't come back. Uh, there was a technical reason which we found out, which was that they were uh, short of phosphorus and there are certain fungi that deal with the, the roots of blueberries. And once they're disturbed, the blueberries uh, don't come back again in any significant way. So, uh, sad to say, this was not uh, a very good outcome. And now, that I've heard recently the family and families have to go to a very distant site to get blueberries every year. So they maintained the, the cultural importance of it, but they couldn't do that in their own community. So sort of partly, partly good news, partly bad news. So let's, uh, given some time constraints, let's stop podcast three there, which was on Indigenous knowledge, and stay tuned for podcast four. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you.